That Europe finds itself at the front of the storm is not something new. The world of tomorrow will be a different place. It's good that Europe is ambitious in climate policy. We should be ambitious but also realistic. Our task is to learn to live within the boundaries Mother Earth has given us. Only united we can defend our values, we can protect the interests of our citizens. Hello there and welcome to Citizen Central, the podcast series about the first transnational democracy instrument in the world, the European Citizens Initiative. Celebrating its 10th anniversary in 2022, the ECI gives people the chance to pitch their own EU policies to the European Commission by gathering 1 million signatures from seven EU states. My name is Manix Rakartikawi and on Citizen Central I'll be finding out how the ECI works, how you can launch or support an initiative and what drives people to give up their time and energy for a cause they care deeply about. In today's chapter we will travel to three European countries, starting in the Netherlands where Kirsten Kossen will present us her ECI, Good Clothes, Fair Pay, that wants to draw attention on the rock-bottom salaries clothes producers earn so we can dress ourselves economically. Then we will head over to beautiful Brittany to meet Ronan Ivan, who with his ECI Win It on the Pitch is working hard to protect the European sports model and assure European football fans a fiasco like the European Super League does never happen again. And to finish off, we will head over to Denmark where Pernille Schriever will tell us about her ECI Stop 5G Stay Connected But Protected, which wants to draw attention upon some of the harsh realities of cable-free data. To systems. A brimful chapter of Citizen Central showing the ECI is the tool for people wanting to change European laws and rights in the most diverse of topics. And to kick off, it's time to talk about garments, what we wear and what the economy behind garments means in many cases. Welcome to Citizen Central, Kirsten, and please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, my name is Kirsten Kossen. Uh, I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, I work at ASN Bank, which is a Dutch ethical bank, and I'm the human rights expert within the bank. So I'm making sure that all human rights within uh, all our value chains are uh, safeguarded. So Kirsten, please tell our listeners what you are asking the Commission for with your ECI. Yes, what we are asking for is legislation on wage throughout supply chains of garments companies. Uh, workers that are making our clothes are treated very badly. And we have tried, civil society organizations have tried, many more have tried to get the garment companies to do it voluntary. But that is not working. So I think we need legislation to really make a difference for those that are making our clothes. Somehow it's very abstract, the worker in the factory, and these workers are seen as a, I don't know, raw material, because it's so far away, people do not really think about that it's actually people that are making the clothes. So it needs to come closer to mind, I think. Kirsten, you mentioned wages, but what other example could you share with us? What exactly should companies be doing differently? Uh, One example is that when they cancel an order, they have to do it uh, with a 30-day notice, because what you saw, for example, during 
COVID. Orders that were already produced were cancelled by the garment companies and those orders were not paid for. So factory owners had to fire people. The workers would not get salaries. So even then, the most vulnerable people took all of the risk. Another is that they have to pay uh, in time. So they have the factory owners have money to pay the workers. They have to be very transparent about where their factories are, how many people are working in the factories, what the entry level uh, salaries are. It's a very elaborative proposal, but it makes very clear what is expected from garment companies. So how did the campaign start? Was it well received? Uh, it started quite well, I think, especially when you consider that we started midsummer. But yeah, I think it was picked up by some fashion media. What you see now is that more and more people are supporting the campaign. Organizations are joining as supporters. We still have a long, uh, long way to go to get the one million signatures. But especially the last few weeks, we've seen a, a significant rise in uh, the amount of signatures. So I'm very hopeful. Kirsten, but here in the EU, this is not being the easiest of times, economically speaking. So do you think this will raise the prices of garments considerably? To be honest, uh, I think that if the workers would receive uh, decent pay uh, and a living wage, the products we as a consumer buy will not become much more expensive because it's only a very small proportion of the total cost of a garment piece. Uh, so I think it does not have a, a huge effect on the price people are going to pay. Actually, I believe that there are made a lot of profits and the CEOs of those garment companies have a very, very high salaries. So somewhere these extra costs can be absorbed other than by letting the consumer pay. And yes, I think that goes two ways. I think people within Europe are struggling at the moment to make ends meet because of the inflation. So I would hope that feeling this struggle would also make them more, I don't know, empathize more with, with the workers that are even in worse situations and they are also affected by uh, inflation because it's not only in Europe. Kirsten, but just so people are aware of this situation, what exactly are we talking about? Do you have any data on what these workers actually get? There are different data. I think the most recent I read, which was really horrifying, is that from Shein, I think the workers get four cents per garment piece. That is very a very low amount. And of course, it varies by country, but it's very, very little money. Kirsten, why did you decide to carry it to the European level? Would it not be more logical to pressure the brands on this? Do you by chance have any garment sector clients at the bank you work at, for instance? Um, I think we as a bank have been using our influence as an investor for many years because there's a few fashion companies our investment part is investing in but that's only a very small proportion of all garment companies that are uh, active on the european market so we needed scale because if you have one fashion company that is very willing to make a difference uh, it might very well be that the factory they are sourcing from also supplies i don't know 10 20 other companies and if they don't do the same uh, then nothing will change for the factory workers and I think Europe is the single largest market for garment companies. So that uh, made a lot of sense to start at the European level. And I think it's very important uh, that all these companies get a very clear signal that it's not only investors or civil society organizations, but it's also uh, European citizens that care and that uh, are stepping up to change the situation. Kirsten, but the brands are so engaged right now with the sustainability movement. Every brand is talking about this. But do you think they really are sustainable? It really doesn't seem so when we're talking about the sustainability of worker rights. 
No, exactly. And it's, of course, under a lot of pressure that these companies are taking those initiatives from civil society, but also regulation is getting stricter on the environment, for example. But what you see now is cherry picking. So I will be a bit sustainable on this topic and a little less sustainable on that topic, but I still call myself sustainable. So it's the overall system that needs to change. Those issues are also getting more attention, but I think they are all related. They are all a consequence of uh, the current economic system of producing more, buying more, producing more and buying more. Everything targeted at economic growth while not calculating what it will cost the environment or for human beings that are being affected. So I think it's all part of the same problem. But yeah, I think also the, the, the human rights aspects could be more in the spotlight as well, especially also because of For example, climate change has very serious impacts, uh, especially also for those people in the same countries we are talking about where our clothes are produced. And just to finish off, your initiative relates to manufacturing countries and regions, but I imagine these are also the European manufacturing countries and regions. So do you expect a big signature boost from those specific regions? Yes, absolutely. And that is true in in some of the other European countries as well, because even in those European countries, people that are producing clothes are not getting a living wage. So they can even probably relate better to uh, those workers far away than maybe workers in, for example, our country that are already getting a living wage. Kirsten, it is a very interesting ECI. I wish you the very best of luck and hope you will get the word out there and manage people to think about what they wear in a more economically sustainable way. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Sport is not a typical topic in the ECI. It is a true pleasure to welcome Ronan Ivan to Citizen Central. Ronan, please tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Ronan. I am. I have the pleasure to be the Executive Director of Football Supporters Europe since 2016. I am originally and living in uh, in Brittany, in France. Our office is in Hamburg, in Germany, but we have staff in five or six countries, and we mostly work remote from planes and from hotels and conference centers. And yeah, and I have the pleasure and the pain of supporting uh, FC Nantes, the French club. Could you explain to us what you do exactly at Football Fans EU? Predominantly, our role is to bring together and represent interests football fans in Europe. The closest comparison is probably the trade union. Yeah, We represent our members, we canvass their opinion, we bring their voice to institutions, whether they are political, European institutions, football governing bodies, UEFA, FIFA. The topics we work on are pretty broad. We work on the defense of fundamental rights of football fans, which is often a challenge, obviously due to the nature of the UFI region, which goes, you know, from Iceland to Azerbaijan, but also sometimes in our democracy. Often football fans as a group with less influence than others in the society are targeted by old-fashioned police approach, and, uh, and our role is to try to, to improve things so that our fundamental rights are respected. And uh, yeah, we work on anti-discrimination, we work on uh, making uh, European competition more fan-friendly, and yeah, it's a pretty broad range of topics. Some of our listeners might think that activism and football do not really go hand in hand. The biggest achievements in the history of the European fan movement are always when we are able to fight or to push both in the stands and at the political level. Again, the, this is the analogy of trade union. Yeah? You have the demonstration and you have the negotiation. And that's how things usually work best. We get the credibility and our mandate from the stands. So only when the stands express themselves clearly, then we can take things up to the public authorities or to the football governing bodies to try to make progress. 
So where does your ECI win it on the pitch come from? And what are you asking the commission for? It starts from the general understanding of sport in general and football in particular as being more than a business, yeah? We have all these people investing money in football that try to explain to us that it's a business, but it's not a business, it's not rational. Or it's a business, maybe in parts, but it's based on people's emotion, attachment, identity, and so on. The same way then that music or cinema or literature can be, can be a business because you have companies that have something to sell. It's not just a business. That's when we started to think we need more protection. The crisis of the Super League, which could have led to complete revamping, an explosion of the sports pyramid as we know it, with redistribution, with the possibility to go up and down the pyramid and so on. If this would have disappeared, that was it. That was the end of sport as we know it. That's when we thought we need to ask for more from the European Union. We need to ask for protection. In the end, that's what it... The opposition to the Super League, the fight against some of football's worst owners and investors and so on, the, the protection to the club, making sure your club doesn't disappear, doesn't get bankrupt and so on. It all shows that we need protection. We need protection for our competitions because that's the basis of the pyramid as it exists. We need protections for our clubs. It's not just a company that can disappear from one one day to another and then what comes together with all of this is our communities it's all the local communities the local ecosystem the people who work for the club the social environment of the club that needs protection as well and if we think that some of our national governments are failing to provide this protection then we need to look at also the European Union and ask for more. Ronan most people know about the Super League but where exactly did this crisis come from? Some clubs became too big. They got control of too much of the football economy and then they gained too much influence in the governance of football at the domestic and European level. So that explained why they started to see themselves bigger as the sport as it exists. They didn't like the rules. They thought they could change the rules. And that shows already a fundamental flow in, in the mindset of those people. That was the first factor. The second factor was the fact that they survive on an unsustainable economic model and COVID just made it more obvious. They have a big turnover. There's a lot of cash coming in and out. The model is unsustainable, but we're talking about people that are incapable of looking outside of, of their, their current model. They just looked for a way to make this unsustainable business last a little longer. COVID showed how fragile those big football clubs are. So how do you think your ECI can solve this, Ronan? And why exactly did you choose the ECI for this campaign? Our ECI, like a lot of ECI, asks for clarification. The European model of sports, the definition is not very clear, depending on who you ask in general. Huh? What we know for sure is that the European model of sports needs two things. One is regulation. There needs to be a regulator. And in football, this role is played by UEFA. And yes, sometimes fans, most of the times, are critical of football's governing bodies and, and regulatory body. But it's rarely to ask less regulation. It's rather to ask the regulator to play its role in ensuring there's a proper sporting balance and that and that everybody plays by the rules and it's not, you know, the rule of the strongest, but rather than, than everybody's put on the same level. So we don't want less UFO, we want more UFO, more regulation. And the other thing is, at least in sports that have fans, organized fans, the, the European model of sport cannot be in the hands of the most powerful of the sports governing bodies, because we as fans are sustaining this financial model. We are at the basis of it. We're the one paying for it. So just like any other consumers in Europe, but also stakeholders, we should have our word in this. And our view is that it's the role of the European Union to not only speak to the regulators and to the ones that organize those competitions, but also take into consideration the views of the European citizens. And that's the thing that's also uh, the opportunity that the ECI offers. 
Ronan, how is the campaign going? Because we're talking of millions of fans, but bringing them over to sign a petition relating to policy must be so complicated. One of the biggest challenge is the difference of culture towards petition from one country to another. And obviously in countries where you have the right to petition to your parliament, it's easier because people are used to it. But in other countries, such like France, where, when this system don't exist, it's, it's more challenging. If we want a long-term solution to the Super League, that's our chance to influence the course of, of things at the European level. And we don't often get that chance as European citizens in general and as football fans in particular. It's a bit of a one-time opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's certainly more work than we anticipated. And uh, yeah, it's a bit frustrating to see that if this would have been a national petition in a number of the countries, they would have reached the numbers, no problem. But because it's the European Union, people, I don't know, feel less engaged or maybe have the perception that there's less chances to change the course of things at the EU level. Well, we still have six months, so I think uh, we can still make it work. Ronan, thank you so much for joining us on Citizen Central. I wish you the very best of luck with your ECI. Hopefully we'll manage. Thanks. global world would not be possible without technology, but our engagement with tech sometimes does not allow us to see the complications it brings to European citizens. Perniel Schriever, thanks for joining us on Citizen Central and please tell our listeners who you are, where you are from and what your profession is. My name is uh, Pernil uh, Schriever and I'm from Denmark. I'm educated as a biologist and for the past 15 years I've been a science, te science teacher and I teach uh, biology, geography, physics and chemistry from grade four until grade nine. Oh, so you expose yourself on a daily basis to probably the most technologically addicted generation, right? Yes, and I'm trying to show them that there is a world without mobile phones and that that world is really great. So I'm really trying to, to sell the idea that nature and science is a, a really neat and, and uh, modern issue to uh, to work with. Please explain what your ECI Stop 5G is about and what you're asking the Commission for. In the long debates with all the skilled people from all the different EU countries, talked about what the ECI should focus on. And we actually started out only with a focus on 5G in regard of the radiation part. And when I say 5G, it's not only on 5G, it's on all wireless uh, technology devices. So it's also Wi-Fi, mobile phones, 2G, 3G and 4G and so on. We found out that the, especially in Spain, they were very concerned about in, in the environmental side effects. They talked a lot about the, the mining consequences when we had to dig up resources, uh, metals and minerals to produce all the devices that oh, the society wants to use for the 5G development and Internet of Things. The energy consumption, the pollution from all the production and so on. And then there was a, a part of the, the ECI group that would like to have the surveillance, the data collection or leak things in, in as well. So our ECI is actually based on three main topics, the radiation part, the environmental part, and the, the data collection and surveillance uh, issue. How was the beginning process of the initiative? In 2019, we saw a lot of protests and demonstrations around Europe. At that time, it was legal to go in the streets and demonstrate against the, the 5G. And this German guy, he actually, actually started out the, the ECI process and he gathered a lot of countries so he asked for other people to uh, to help him so i said okay i'll chip in i'll try to help finish the the writing process so we can submit 
the the papers to the to the EU Commission, and that is where I my ECI work started. So at that moment uh, where I took over from the German guy, he had already a huge network. We uh, managed to get eight or ten more countries. So now we have contact persons in all the 27 EU countries. Pernil, how are you putting the strategy together? From the beginning, we have um, uh, agreed that it's up to each country to have their own campaign, to focus on the issues that we know is more important for the Spanish people than for the Danish people or for the German people. But we have like our logo and our banner and a lot of uh, campaign material on our webpage that uh, all the different countries can download. They can write their own text with the logo. We are open for, for, for people using the logo and the slogan in a different way, but we have the same ECI that we have to sign. Pernil, technology is polarizing. It always has detractors and supporters. So what would you tell people that find 5G crucial to their work? Yeah, well, I think that we should have um, a debate and discussion about the, the wireless technology because a lot of uh, the wireless could be cable. For instance, if you have a, a city with a lot of houses, the data uh, should be uh, in such and such quality. So you have to have so much radiation or so much data sent from the antenna to the houses because the, all the data has to get through the walls, the brick walls or the wooden walls. So you have to have a lot of radiation from, sent from the mast to the community for you to have a functional smartphone inside your house. So what I usually say is that when you have this perspective, it's just like asking your house to be enlightened by the street lamps. But you have, you have the ability to send all these data in a cable. And that is actually going to be more fast and it's going to be more cheap and you don't have to use that much energy either. So what I think we should start talking about is where do we actually have the benefit of using fast connections and where can we cable them? Because a cable will be more efficient, it will be less energy consuming and you have the opportunity to protect data as well more if it's cable. So it will be more secure as well. You still have time to gather signatures, but do you think that the million signatures is achievable? Ah, well, it it seems like we have realized that uh, we might not hit the million. It, it's difficult, but we are a growing number of people that are aware of this. And we are a growing number of organizations that are working together. And that is actually one of the positive things also with the ECI is that we are about to, to start an organization, a European organization called Europeans for Safe Connections. So I think that we can we can do a better work, uh, job uh, fighting this and, and educating our politicians and our doctors if we work together. Pernil, thanks for joining us on Citizen Central. Thank you very much for the nice interview. Well, that brings this edition of Citizen Central to an end. Thank you so much to all our guests and, of course, to you for listening. And if you fancy finding out a little bit more about any of these ECIs, please do check our show notes. And you can also take a look at the ECI website or follow the ECI's individual social media channels. And of course, if you want to propose a brand new ECI, you can head over to the ECI forum to learn more about how to get started. 
I'm Manix Ricardo Kawi, and you've been listening to Citizen Central. <laughs>